Welcome to the Otherwise Podcast, Season 3. I'm your host, Casey Tigert. I'm an author, pastor, and spiritual director. I want to acknowledge we are in the midst and sort of, depending on where you live, coming to the close of a very strange time. A time where a lot of us have been asked to stay home, a time of COVID-19, of quarantine, a time where we've had to readjust some priorities, a time when we've had to rethink some of the things that we believe are important. And so I pray that that has gone well for you. I pray that some of these conversations on the podcast have been helpful as you've had different kinds of time to spend with content. And a lot of what's going to come out of this season of quarantine is going to be about our minds and what we think and how our minds work and specifically how our brains work. And so today I want to invite you to a conversation that's about two things. One, this is a deep dive into the way our brain works and the way that affects our theology and our formation and our belief in God and Jesus and the way that we are made. Today we're talking with Dr. Jim Wilder about his book, Renovated. And he is a neurotheologian, and he begins to talk to us about how the brain really works and how that affects the things that we believe, and specifically how our brain feeds off of the things that we really love and attach to. So we're going to talk about things like mutual mind. We're going to talk about fast track and slow track thinking. We're going to talk about all kinds of different things. And so I want to welcome you to that. So that's one. The second that is tied to this is the idea of atonement. And that question has to do with what really happened with Jesus on the cross. And these two ideas come together. So if you're from a Christian tradition, uh, we're going to talk about one of the key movements, one of the key pieces of theology for Christians. If you're not from a Christian tradition or you, you don't call yourself part of any religious tradition, I still feel like this will be a very valuable conversation for you. And so I'm just giving you a heads up. We are jumping into the deep end. So fasten your seatbelt, get ready to listen maybe more than once to this conversation with Dr. Jim Wilder. Well, Jim, we're talking, you're in the mountains right now and had some interesting things happen this morning. So, so I hear. (laughs) Yes, uh, some uh, mountain lion tracks and an attack on the house by some birds. So yeah, it's uh, nice. <laughs> See, and in, you know, living in the suburbs of Chicago, we have we have coyotes that walk around, and we're like, "That's wildlife." No, no, no. What you're talking about—that's wildlife. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They they come on by the house regularly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for coming on today. It's a pleasure to talk to you and uh, talk about the things that you've written in your book. And um, some of the interesting things that I think don't get talked about enough, the first one being this idea of, of neurotheology. Um, I want to get into that, but I ask, I ask every guest on the podcast the same question, so I don't want to exempt you from that. Um, we always talk about wisdom, and that's what we're seeking, a lot of us who are listening and creating. For you, if, if you were going to begin to develop uh, the, a concept or a definition or uh, a description of wisdom, where would you start? Where's the starting point for you in talking about wisdom? Well, oddly enough, the first time I heard about wisdom was when I was, uh, I think, about five years old. And my mother was actually teaching a lesson about Solomon. 
becoming king in a, in a summer camp. And uh, so <clears throat> God comes and says to Solomon, ask for anything you want. And the five-year-old, I'm thinking, oh, this is like Aladdin's lamp, only even better because it's real. It's God. You know, what will I ask? Bicycle? No, that's not big enough. And I'm just running through my head. And then the story goes on, well, I haven't solved the problem yet. Ask for wisdom. Wisdom? What is that? Um, so um, I, then I heard, well, since you asked for wisdom, you get everything else. So since five years of age, I've been repeatedly praying for wisdom and then my bit name being James and book of James seeing if anyone asks for wisdom, you know, so it is something I've thought about a lot. Um, and I believe uh, that um, wisdom really, especially if you compare it with fools in the old Testament is understanding where life comes from. So uh, if you think life comes from the wrong thing, you're foolish. And so Understanding that life comes from God, being able to see things from his perspective, and knowing that um, we're only seeing a tiny little bit of that perspective, so we may not understand it. I think that's the difference for me between uh, wisdom and understanding. Wisdom, you know, there's a, there's a bigger mind than yours out there thinking stuff, and you want to follow it. Understanding means I've got it. I can explain that mind to you. I'm very annoyed by people who understand God. <laughs> oh, that's a tweetable line right there, for sure. Wisdom, uh, what I'm hearing you say is wisdom has a kind of a generative power to it. It, it gives, it's the thing that gives life and, and energizes it and, and encourages it to go on. That's such a beautiful thing. I think it, I think it resonates, too, with biblical theology. Uh, there's always this life at the center that's making everything else move. And it's that idea that that's the idea that I think captivates us. Is that, is that where you were headed with that? Yes, I would say so because, uh, you know, we tend to think of wisdom as having lots of facts or data, but facts and data are not necessarily the source of life. They're not just, they, that's not what keeps you alive. And wisdom is very much tied to the the life that flows through us from God. Um, so being connected to that life um, in the right ways, being a part of it, not fighting it, all of those things are, are wisdom. I, I love that that's where you started because typically when you hear of anyone who attaches the prefix neuro to what they do, it, our, our, our thoughts automatically go to a very scientific, very clinical very idea-driven kind of world. But you, you talk about being a neurotheologian. Where did that journey begin for you, and how, is that, how has that blossomed into like a fuller way that you look at life and way that you do the writing and, and the work that you do? Well, um, I've always been very interested in science and particularly um, unsolved problems, uh, you know, the current COVID situation, which happens to be going on right now. Um, I follow that a lot. I follow the, you know, different kinds of, I want to know how things work and what's going wrong with them. And in a sense, the, the fall of man is something going wrong with the equipment we run. So prior to the fall, the human mind really harmonized really well with God, just it flowed along smoothly then something went wrong, and salvation is about putting that back. 
Somehow Jesus came to show us, among other things, how to run the brain that God gave us. And uh, I had experience when I was 19 of seeing a, a miraculous healing as a result of just saying, Jesus, help, you know. And it's actually a little alluded to at the beginning of the book that we're talking about. Um, and I went to find out it was a, a emotional healing, psychological healing. I want to know what happened there. And that started my study. So in graduate school, I met my first neurotheologian, Dr. Lee Travis. And uh, he let me know there was a long tradition going back to Nemesius, the Bishop of Emesa, in the year 390. So uh, he was the first person to say, you know, the brain has to serve God and that's where your personality is. So for a, a long time, we've been trying to figure out this mystery of creation. How do we get this to run again the way God meant it to? So for me, whenever you intersect what neuroscience says is important with what the Bible says is important, and you get a match, I, I think, oh, that's it. That's the stuff right there. You know, it, it actually runs the way the Bible tells you to run it. And so that's been just fascinating for me. So been on that trick trip now for about 30 years. It's such a, it's something that I've found interesting because the brain is such a central part of who we are and how it functions and how it, how it creates us from archiving memories to creating the questions that we ask as children, learning how the world really works and things like that. But any of us, a lot of us, not any of us, a lot of us who trace our our theology uh, backwards and look back up the family tree, especially from an evangelical side of the coin, we tend to find our way to Dallas Willard at some point. And you interacted with both Dallas and Jane, his wife, at a critical time for you. You talk about that a little bit in the book. How did they, how did Dallas and Jane enter into your story or, and vice versa, how did you enter into, into theirs? Yeah, well, I was going to graduate school for counseling, and the uh, place I got stationed for my training, uh, my one of my first supervisors is Jane Willard. And so at that point, she's just a supervisor, and she mentioned that her husband uh, taught philosophy over at USC, and all right, I, that's fine. <laughs> Uh, and she was director of training. So one day she said, I want to invite uh, my husband Dallas to come over and talk. So I was ready for a pretty boring staff meeting because I didn't know him from Adam, you know. <laughs> so he comes in and within two or three minutes, he's managed to blow all of our minds. And uh, uh, you know, the first thing he said, well, you know, psychology counseling, that's a care of souls. It used to be the providence of the church. But the church has stopped caring about souls. And so now counselors are having to do what the church used to do. He says, now the most important thing about caring for souls is you have to love them. And right there, I knew I was in serious trouble. Um, the, uh, everything I've been taught in graduate school is don't get emotionally involved. Don't get attached. Don't, you know, no, no relationships here. Uh, you know, I was staying as far from people as I could while I was counseling them. I took off my wedding ring before I went in, you know, they didn't have any pictures of the family up in those days. You're just really, you know, so people would say, well, are you married? I said, well, that's a very interesting question. What does it matter to you if I'm married or not? Let's explore <laughs> that issue. And I would never answer, you know, so going from there to loving people, it's like, ah, 
but he was right. You know, that's really, uh, you know, and actually it turned out that loving people is pretty closely involved with salvation and discipleship. And that's what began to grow out of that, uh, that discussion back and forth. He had his ideas coming out of spiritual formation and we are testing them. Um, running a Renovari group in our counseling center and things like that. And it, uh, we get mixed results. Uh, we got re- mixed results from counseling. He got mixed results from the spiritual disciplines, really good results for some people. And then other people had plateau out and some people just couldn't get into it at all. And we had the same problem going on, but they weren't the same people. So we thought, well, let's, let's kind of put these together and see, and it turns out the people we were helping were the ones that the spiritual formation wasn't working well for. And the ones spiritual formation was working well for were the people we weren't seeing. And so, um, you know, that putting these two together started to solve a problem for us. You know, it started to make a few things more, more evident. You know, there was something deeper that was not really working, wasn't part of our counseling, wasn't part of spiritual formation. That's where neuroscience came in. It's interesting how that builds the bridge because I've, as a spiritual director, I've heard the stories of people who have come uh, looking for the presence of God in their daily life. And at the same time, they've also presented with emotional um, psychological needs. And so it's usually a tandem work between a counselor and a spiritual director. And for you, it's almost as if Dallas and Jane represented the presence, uh, how they operated. Dallas was always the philosophy into practice. And Jane was always carrying that practice in this supervisory role to the next step. And it's almost like a, like two weather systems came together and produced this really nourishing rain for you and the work that you do. And the word I think that's associated with that is this idea of attachment love. In the book, you talk about mm-hmm. attachment and even, um, oh, I love this. I love, I love diving in the deep end and hopefully our listeners are too, because I think they're listening to this and they're hearing their own stories. I tried the disciplines. I worked really hard at that. Even though I know I can't earn anything, I worked really hard at that. And I, Eh, you know, they get kind of the eh results. But when you talk about attachment love, you even talk about the idea of a soteriology, a theology of salvation based on attachment. Can you give us a snapshot of that a little bit? Yeah, well, um, we went looking uh, for uh, how does the identity form in the brain? And uh, in the 1990s, uh, brain scans started to finally work well enough that you could scan a working living brain. Up until then, we just studied dead brains. And there's only so much you can figure out from that. Uh, you know, so it's put together, but how does it run? We don't know. Um, and uh, we got learned a little bit from people with strokes missing a piece of the missing of the brain. So you go, oh, that piece must do this, but how does it do it? We don't know. So when those began to get answered, we discovered that the a, Baby's brain is born pretty much like a bowl of spaghetti, just, you know, everything laying in there. And it's got to organize itself into a human being within four years. And it does that by imitating and strengthening whichever things are being done by the person it attaches to. 
And during that time, about a third of the brain that hasn't developed yet grows to become very much like whoever it's copying. And if attachment uh, is what forms character, we also later found out attachment is what corrects character. Now, it creates your identity and how you're going to act. Those, those reactions that you have before you even think about them are all created and driven by who you are attached to. And, and you attach basically to whoever's glad to see you, whoever brings you joy. So it was a joy-driven mechanism. We first had to go look, is there joy in the Bible? I mean, I'd been a Christian, I had a degree in theology, I was ordained minister. I had never heard of any importance around joy. I mean, I'd heard it was there, sure. but, you know. Then I went back to look and Jesus said, well, um, these things I've spoken to you that my joy might be in you and your joy might be the fullest possible joy. And I'd just been listening to the neurologists that say, well, what makes a brain grow is the fullest possible joy. Uh, you have to, you have to work that joy. You have to get it bigger. And Jesus is saying, I've been talking to you, but really the, what I'm trying to achieve is to have my joy be in you and uh, that joy be as big as possible. I said, well, that would be the right way to develop a brain. I wonder if Jesus was onto that. Uh, so now the question is, since that joy only happens with people that you're attached to, could the Bible possibly mean attachment when it talks about love? Mm. And so looking at the Old Testament word for chesed, which is enduring or abiding love, it's, that's what attachment does. It, it connects you and it won't let go. Does the New Testament say anything about loves that will attach to you and won't let go? I believe it does. Oh, well, now we begin to look into those things. And so then if that's the case, wouldn't uh, the brain won't change to be like someone unless you form an attachment. So shouldn't salvation involve forming a new attachment with, with God through Jesus? Yeah. Well, is there any evidence of that? And then you go to First uh, John, where he's talking to the book, uh, the church in Ephesus, I believe. And he says, well, you got all your theology right, but you've lost your, your love. You've lost your attachment. Mm -hmm. you're, not, you're not connected to me anymore. And I said, well, isn't that classic for us? If that means attachment, you know, what do we do in our usual, you know, we run Christianity a lot the way we, I ran counseling, you know. Our pastor doesn't connect with us. We go to church where there's programs, but we don't really get connected with other people. We, you know, maybe get in a small group, but if we find a better one, we're off and we, you know, go someplace. There's no permanence being built there anywhere. Yeah. And the brain always builds for permanence. Does God build for permanence? Mm. Starting to look like he did. And if so, why wouldn't he use the most powerful mechanism in the brain to be central to changing our character. It would work if he used it. It's just that our theology and our church practices don't use it. And really spiritual formation, unless you go back to somebody like uh, St. Teresa of Avila, who is very much into um, contemplative, which she said, God has to reveal his presence to you. And then you, love him and if you don't practice these things she called virtues with your community you can never get to that kind of connection with god and i said well she's talking about all the things brain science tells us are important she just doesn't know those terms yeah. so there's been this tradition within the church we just haven't been using it for 
the last 500 years very much. And for, for people who grew up in a certain theological tradition, this can sound like deconstructing all of that. When in honesty, in all honesty, it's really just taking the idea and letting the new discoveries we have in neuroscience articulate it. You know, Teresa of Avila was talking about this stuff well before she had the language. So it's something that's already real. All we're doing is articulating it with a variety of, from a variety of different ways, um, whether it's from the new insights from brain science or, or any number of things. We're just articulating it differently. Does that, does that sound right? Yeah, there's a lot of things that we know, but it, um, sometimes we don't know uh, how they work, and so we really can't participate with them. And, and sometimes we don't know the relative importance of them. So um, just to give you a, a counseling example, we used to work by trauma by working very hard to help people experience the trauma, and then at the end we'd take them to Jesus. And we realized the trauma was, uh, by the time they could connect with Jesus, uh, the trauma was resolved. So we thought that, that was very, very good. And, and we worked very hard and put people through a lot of misery to do that. Um, then along comes brain science and says, well, when you're in trauma, your brain's in a disorganized state. And you work and work and work until you finally get the brain to an organized enough state where it recognizes relationship. And once it does, it connects to Jesus. Okay. But suppose instead you flipped it around and said, well, if the problem is we're trying to get the brain out of a disorganized state, why don't we start with a, a well-organized state? Why don't we start by connecting with Jesus and then try to keep the brain organized instead of taking it to its worst function and trying to work its way back? Let's do our work from the, you know, the positive side going in. And so it turns out when you connect um, to Jesus first and stay connected there, stay in a relational state, takes about a sixth of the amount of time and a whole lot less energy to do the same amount of work because your brain is actually in its optimum functioning point. So uh, I think, you know, all the ingredients are the same, but which place do you start? And so the neuroscience says, you know, if you really want to connect with God, and this is one of the things that used to torment uh, Teresa of Avila, she, she could go into these times of dryness, these times of not being able to connect with God. And from what I read, a lot of that time, her mind is in a non-relational state. And in the non-relational state, your brain cannot perceive God's presence, or if it does, gives it no importance. So listening to God means we have to be in a relational state in order to perceive his presence and the importance of that message. Uh, and that's the difference between just having this information and truth-based approach to having a relational play, to approach. If I'm connected and grateful, I'm going to much more easily, you know, I enter God's presence with thanksgiving in my heart, I'm going to be much more likely to know he's there uh, he's there all the time, right? But does my brain know it? Sure. That's the question. Yeah. And just like when you're asleep or you've had, uh, I've never tried this, but 10 beers, you're going to have a hard time being aware of God's presence. Yeah. Just because your brain isn't running right. Yeah. So. And as you talk about it in the book, the attachment, the attachment forms around, for people who are listening, I mean, the way I would see this is, 
you become you become what and who you love. That there's a Absolutely. translation of the word that we typically translate faith that could also be fidelity or allegiance. And if you look at it in marital terms, where fidelity is being loyal to the one we love, it's not a formulaic set of things that we do. Those flow out of that. So it's as if the it's the attachment that forms the the drive and the ethics and all the things that they come out of that rather than the other way around. Uh, how you talk about two different kinds of thinking though. So it's easy to get caught up in, okay, so now I'm just going to think really hard about being attached to God. And that has sort of a backward effect, doesn't it? So you talk about fast track and slow track thinking. I love that because I think that's really helpful. Can you talk about that as it pertains to how we're, how we go through the process of spiritual transformation? Sure. Well, um, there's a, an upstream part of the brain, which is the fast track. It runs at six cycles per second of awareness. Um, and it figures out who am I and what it would be like my people to do under these conditions. So we sort of assume consciously we always know who we are. But that's because the conscious mind runs five cycles per second. and It's always behind the faster part of the brain. So every time we become conscious, we've already figured out who we are. And so we just think we always know. But figuring out who we are is an ongoing process. How, who am I and how would I respond to these circumstances? So uh, Dallas always used as a sort of a, a benchmark, do we love our enemies? Um, so when I find an enemy, by the time I'm conscious of it, my identity has already told me how we react to them. Yeah. So if I don't like you and I want to get away from you, my identity does not include loving my enemies. It includes getting away from or avoiding my enemies or attacking my enemies, whatever else it is. And we put in our slow track, we put, well, I should love my enemies. And then it becomes what Dallas calls uh, sin management. Right. You know, I know I should, I don't, I shall try and manage it over here in this slow conscious tractor, which is always downstream from our true identity. So we get caught so, up in thinking, I don't love my enemies. I need to read a book about loving my enemies or study all these passages. Mm -hmm. And we're doing it sort or of focus after on the trying effect. to do yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Fake it till I sure. make it, you know, <laughs> and all those kinds of things, yeah. Now, there's some value in not attacking your enemy and acting like the, you know, full-out heathen, you know. Can, uh, limiting sin is has its value, but it doesn't really transform our character. Right. Right. So to get into the fast track, we have to operate faster than the conscious mind. And that means uh, we have to get the brain into some kind of a joy state, joy being relational. We're glad to be together. Mm. So one of the simple practices, um, well, this is one that Dallas did without knowing anything about attachment, but he said it was foundational to uh, his spiritual life. Is before he got out of bed in the morning, he would stop and make sure that he remembered the things that God had done for him and start with a sense of thankfulness every day. Well, now that's actually very good from a fast track point of view. If I remember back, the remembering uses the fast track, you know, Things pop into your mind faster than you know how you pull them out. And you're looking for, and I always say, let's ask the Holy Spirit to help. 
looking for those times that God has touched your life that you're really appreciative. And one of the fun things I've found that is that everybody in the world who's willing to try, including the atheists, will find them if they ask the question. Well, there was this time. There was this time. I don't believe in God, but there was this time. Uh, uh, you know, I, the Buddhists find it. The Muslims find it. Everybody finds it if they go looking. And then there's this interesting thing that since God is present, he often starts talking to people who have started looking for him. For he's not far away. I think some, uh, some said that. So included in that, in the fast track, so the fast track is how we, if I was bringing this to someone and they were like, explain this to me, the fast track is, is what we do without thinking, without, it's what we do without conscious thought. It's what we do automatically as part of our character. The slow track is mm-hmm. what we do when we focus our attention, where yes. we move away from the automatic you know, we learning to love our enemies without thinking about it is transformation. Mm-hmm. Learning to read and study about loving our enemies is more of that focused, much slower and less likely to produce transformation. So when I talk to people about the teachings of Jesus, especially in the Sermon on the Mount, there are so many of those teachings that Jesus seems to be assuming they'll become automatic parts of us. Loving as a reflex rather than, okay, here's the plan for how I'm going to love this person and I'm going to lay it out in an Excel spreadsheet. It's, no, you become the kind of person who loves people and does it without really having to, quote-unquote, think about it or focus on it. Yes, the the reaction becomes our primary reaction, but to avoid being one side of the brain or the other, the uh, the left side of the conscious left dominant of the conscious side of the brain is very well designed for problem solving and so a lot of spiritual life begins by realizing there's a problem in my life and what are the procedures i can follow to help with that and the spiritual disciplines are very good at 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 identifying and pulling those kind of problems out that happens at that slower conscious speed but Identifying pulling out problems doesn't build joy and character at the same time. It makes room for it. You don't, you don't pull out those problems. Sometimes there's no room for growing anything else. Mm-hmm. But uh, the, uh, the times when God makes himself known, I mean, the, I got, the theological question comes down, is God an active presence in the world or mm-hmm. not? Uh, and a lot of the uh, debates in, um, in Christianity about uh, the activity of the Holy Spirit get blended in this in ways that are confusing. But I don't think there's anyone that believes that even if all you can do is read scripture, that you would understand that without the Holy Spirit's active involvement, it has to be there or scripture just doesn't, it doesn't touch something, right? Doesn't touch your identity. So the active presence of the Holy Spirit reveals to us, the actual power of God, which is in his love, his attachment to us. And as we begin to notice that 
and enjoy it and appreciate it and thank him for it, we we start down this path where, you know, you can't look outside and see the beautiful day without thinking, wow, God's here, you know. And as these things grow, our joyful attachment begins to grow with him. And even when trouble comes, suffering, you know, um, you go to the hospital, we want God there with us, yeah. right? Yeah. This is a bad day. It's not the kind of day I want to go through without God here with me, because the only thing I can be glad about under these conditions is that I have God with me. So even under, there's a kind of joy there, right? We're glad to be together, mm. even though this is hard. That's that's the sing, second part of joy, the strengthening of joy. Jesus says, pick up your cross. First part of joy was he, he fed them with bread and all that good stuff, and everyone loved the, the happy Jesus. But and Jesus says, you know, we're going to do hard things together. Uh, that's the strengthening of character. And at that point, we say, well, yeah, well, if you're going to love them, I guess I'm going to look at you and find out how to do it. And now our first reaction to things begins to change because we go, well, how does he see it? That's our first thing we want to know. We're kind of people that want to know that. And that, that has to be learned by your brain. But as it does, your reaction to your enemies begins to shift before you even have a chance to consciously think, how will I do it? So there's a, the conscious directing, identifying problems, taking stuff out of the way, and then there's the learning to love that is the part we've uh, seems kind of mystical and mysterious to us. From a brain point of view, it's not very mysterious. Yeah. Uh, you know, how God reveals himself to us, I don't think science will ever solve that one uh, because, you know, unless they can picture God on their, you know, test mechanisms, they're not going to know if whether it was him or not. Uh, yeah. You know, frankly, he hasn't been showing up for pictures. Yeah. <laughs> that is something that I've always believed was core for people is your, your belief and your picture of who God is directly mm -hmm. impacts what you will do with it and who you see yourself to be. And that idea of I'd... it'll also interpret how it'll also structure how you interpret those times when life seems hard or hurt. Yes. You know, if you know someone cares about you, you know, I remember one time taking my son in to get a shot. He's like 18 months old or something like that. And, and it hurt. And he looked at me like, daddy, are you trying to hurt me? And I was like, like, no, this is bad, but we got to do it together. He goes, okay. You know, I don't understand it, but he's with me, and this isn't a bad thing, even though it hurts yeah. me. I think that's what we're trying to achieve with God, you know, something as basic as that. Uh, that It's the attachment. If we think, well, God is mean, he doesn't like me, he's looking for ways to slap me around, then when something hurts us, we think, ah, see, he finally got his, sh his shot in, this is what he wanted to do. But when we, we call it knowing his heart, yeah. right? Yeah. That. I call that from brain perspective, a good attachment. And we even have some theological systems that reinforce that idea that for God to, God is, for God to be just, it means that we, he must inflict suffering on us every once in a while. And I tend to see it the other way to see that suffering comes regardless. <laughs> suffering is part of the human experience. Uh, God being the agent depends on your on the image that you carry with you and i've always felt like if, if jesus is if jesus is right dallas used to say this all the time if jesus is right about everything that he said 
when he said, I only do what I see the Father doing, then there you have a picture. And does this correlate with that picture that he presents? And that's a that's kind of a cognitive thing, but that's also a reflexive thing, I, I think. Yeah. Um, you know, part of what you're talking about, there's the doctrine of atonement, mm. and we've been much influenced by Anselm, which is a whole other discussion going back a thousand years in which he decided that atonement was all about punishment yeah. god had to punish and so jesus had to be punished for our sins and we hear this all the time that we don't realize it's a thousand years into the church before anyone started thinking that way and it was brought on by uh you know the age of common law probably as a uh, change in in uh, european culture about the time of the Magna Carta that allowed him to think, oh, you know, because prior to that, law was about putting things right again. Right, right. After that, it was about how much punishment do they deserve. And uh, I noticed you had one of your podcasts on incarceration. Well, our whole thought of about incarceration is about how much punishment do you deserve, not about putting things right. And that goes back to Anselm. Well, maybe God isn't out to punish everybody. Maybe God in salvation is trying to put creation back the way God intended uh, as the primary function. So if that's what's going on, attachment is the mechanism. That's what salvation is about. And and even if you hold on to the punishment argument, uh, eternity is about putting things right. Right. You know, but Dallas is very much about eternity needs to move into the present. And I guess, you know, if you want to, well, here's the thing. The human brain can learn to do that. So, all, you know, if you don't move it into the present, it isn't because we can't learn to begin to think like God does, but think with him. Yeah. Uh, there's this mutual mind state the brain is designed for to think along with somebody. We can learn to do that. Uh, and so I think we're really without excuse if we wanted to be disciples of Jesus to start to learn to think and uh, and act and respond like him because he's designed to bring to do it. I think Jesus did that himself, yeah. right? So uh, following his example, let's tame that brain. Yeah. Well, that's an interesting point because I think that is also a piece of the book that was really helpful is the idea of the difference between thinking with God and thinking about God. And how does attachment, how does this attachment love create the the two dichotomies, not dichotomies, but the two pieces of thinking with God and thinking about God? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, the um, attachment love is the mechanism that will let someone into the fast track of the brain. In other words, we're not going to think with, share with, uh, develop a mind like people that we don't see as our own people. Right. Very important question for the brain or who am I people? Yeah, so people like us, so, we do this. Yeah, we do. Absolutely. That's, that's essential for the brain. And so the question is, is God creating a people? And Peter says, once you were not a people, but now you've become a people. Once you were, had not gotten mercy, because apparently it takes some mercy to make us into people. Uh, and so, But this fast system, you know, you think about words, which are what uh, happens about thinking with God and the conscious. It's taken me a lot of words to try to explain this to you. But I can actually see you on the monitor here. And when you nod and smile, 
in much less time than the words ever went through, I go, oh, he gets it. Or I see you licking. I think he, he's thinking of his next question right now. Am I going to tie this to what I had? You know, that's mutual mind. I'm following your mind at a speed much faster than words. And my brain can do that if we can have some sense of God's presence. Now, it doesn't have to be a physical presence. In fact, John says, if you can't love your brothers who you have seen, how are you going to do this with God who you haven't yeah. seen? So part of learning to love others is to teach our brain how to be relational enough so that when God puts a sense in our mind, we go, I think I know what he wants. I think I know where he's going. I think, you know, and, and the, the I think I know is the conscious mind slowly catching up with, with what the other part of my brain knows already. It's, oh, yeah, I know that. <laughs> what do you mean, I think? <laughs> I think that's why David has all these conversations between his heart and his soul. Mm. Soul, why are you cast down? <laughs> Don't we know these things here? <laughs> I think it's two parts of the mind talking. Sure, sure. So the book, in the book, you do a couple of things. And, and our conversation today has been so, I mean, we, we dove in full force into the deep end, which has been great. And I think, I know, and, I mean, people will enjoy that. But the book itself, you you do a lot of narrative and dialogue that isn't common for a book. If somebody read something on neurotheology, they would expect something a little more technical. You've done such a great job of weaving together this this very human, very incarnate kind of story. And one of the ways you do that is by bringing in the teachings uh, that Dallas gave at a particular conference and then interacting with them. For you as the writer and as the counselor and in doing the work that you do, what impact did that have on you to sort of, not sort of, what's the word I want to use, to to interact and even sort of joust with, a bit with the the ideas that Dallas presented and, you know, build on them, nuance them, uh, say the same thing in a different way, applying some of the things that neuroscience has taught us. How, what impact did that have on you? Well, it was really a, a, a very mixed kind of an experience. First of all, uh, I was you know talking about attachment and character formation to Dallas, and he's the one who said, uh, well, I've never heard of a soteriology of attachment before, and I really think you should look into this. And there's a grant being written for it, and I'll spend the next year with you if you can get that grant uh, at a major seminary developing this material. I had never thought to go that sure. way. Uh, I'm a, I'm more more of a like let's go to the streets and figure out how we're going to actually live this out kind of a that in, uh, intrigues me. And and any book with footnotes is like I, mean, I did that. In, Seminary, I just don't. If I never put another footnote in, I'll never. Uh, amen, brother. I want to. Oh, amen. I've been there. Yeah. So then he's like pulling me in this very academic. Let's really take the theology. It's one that's never been developed to his knowledge, and I presume that means it hasn't been, because uh, his knowledge. <laughs> if Dallas didn't know it, probably yeah. Probably it isn't there, right? So. Um, uh, I'm suddenly challenged very much with the idea. And then I went through uh, months of filling out this application and putting together a proposal. And then Dallas got sicker and sicker. And he said, you know, I'm not going to live to do this. So you're kind of uh, 
it's your baby, you know, now you take it and work on this. And well, that felt pretty, pretty heavy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, if it wasn't for the way he cried every time we talked about uh, attachment, mm. you know, I'd say this, it's really deep. It touches him. It, I know it's really super important. So on one side, this book was really a climb uphill. I've, I've never had to work so hard. Uh, dot so many eyes, read so many books, do as much research because uh, I knew for Dallas sake it had to be uh, as academically responsible as possible, yeah. and it, it involved going through the whole volunteerism and all of this background in philosophy and um, studying extensively in that area and the neuroscience was just so much easier. <laughs> that phrase, yeah, that gives I, don't, you perspective. I don't know if that phrase has ever been uttered. Definitely not on this podcast. So that's great. <laughs> and then the thing about it is Dallas can be hard to read. Hmm. And, and part of the reason he's hard to read is he always wrote so that whatever he wrote, if his uh, secular cult, uh, colleagues in the philosophy department at USC were to read this, they would be uh, convinced by every sentence he said that he was doing, you know, a deliberately good job. And so when you're, you know, he, he really believed that Christianity is academically respectable and he wanted to produce a book that wasn't just, you know, watered down ideas, sure. which makes it a little hard to read. Yeah. A part of it because philosophers have this habit, and that is they define a word, and afterwards, when you read that word, you're supposed to remember how they defined it, not what you thought it <laughs> That's was. So true. If you don't do that, you lose Dallas very yeah. fast. Well, it's not the reader's habit. So, but Dallas at the conference was very warm and pastoral. He was engaged. He was touching people's lives. Dallas in person, uh, it's really, really hard to walk out of uh, that room and not love him. Yeah, yeah. Uh, just right. And so I wanted to write a book that did justice to Dallas, the pastor, hmm. not Dallas, the academic person. But so it was warm, engaging. Uh, the neuroscience also has not been known for its warm and engaging ways. Sure. So I wanted to bring neuroscience at that same kind of warm, engaging, like we're to people talking about what it means to be human and be like Jesus. And we're bringing neuroscience and philosophy and theology into it so that you can see how this applies, mm. but not so it gets washed away by that. And that blend, um, um, that took a lot of work. It took, um, you know, basically eight years to get this from the lectures um, to uh, the final outcome. And I hope I've done some justice to the, the kind of in interactive sense along with bringing the academic part in the background and a fair number of footnotes, if I must say. <laughs> I had a little argument with my my uh, publishers, though. We we pulled at least half of the footnotes out because I just said, I can't have that many. <laughs> this is a pastoral warm book, you know, just how <laughs> to draw the line. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So a person who picks this book up and decides to read it and um, – you know, I'm thinking I'm list in my head, I'm ticking through the people I know who listen to this podcast. And there's a, a sweep of pastors, of church leaders, of non for profit leaders, but there are also people who board a, a train 
from the suburbs and ride into the city of Chicago and do clerical work or uh, they work at a law firm or whatever, if they were to pick up your book and read it, what, what would you hope they would walk away with? What's the gift that's inside of this book for them that they could find? Well, uh, I think there's probably two things that I would hope they would find, and they're, they're things that I'm already starting to hear. One is you put into words something I've always known but haven't known how to say. So it's like I intuitively knew there was something like this, and, and there it is. And, you know, you, you, you made it understandable. Uh, I think the other thing that people uh, I would hope would have is whether they're coming from the uh, uh, side of I can't connect with God, uh, that they would say, oh, well, obviously this is why my brain's relational circuits are shut off. And unless I get them running, and there's a way to do that. Um, you know, God's going to keep eluding me because my attachments with human beings have been so screwed up that, um, uh, yeah, that's that's scrambling my signal. And then the people have been practicing the spiritual uh, disciplines, and uh, I've had a whole bunch of these already, have said, well, this explains why I plateaued or why progress is so slow or why, you know, I... I keep saying there's got to be something more to the spiritual life, and I don't know what's missing because I've, you know, I've done everything. I believed everything right. I tried everything that's been told. I moved on to the spiritual disciplines. I got this far, and it's very hard work for the yield I'm getting anymore. And this would say, from the brain perspective, you've left out a couple of the vitamins that are very, very needed for that to keep growing. And once you do, you'll see that growth take off again. Now, I've had a very wild dream. It's in the the Appendix A, and that is that churches and gatherings of Christians would begin to do the practices that build attachment and that we would become an attachment-based community. Um, And that, well, when I wrote the book, I was a lot more uh, uncertain whether that could happen. but uh, with, at the risk of uh, sort of time stamping our interview, COVID has shook, shook up the church and their standard meeting practices in such a way that I don't know if we'll ever go back to how it was. Sure. And the need for relational Christianity that will work in small groups or in some other kind of face-to-face meetings um, has dramatically increased from the time I sent this to the publishers till right now. So maybe in that sense, this is a time when churches could grow a different kind of relational fabric than we've thought of before. And if so, that would be my big dream, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for doing the hard work. Thank you for taking eight years and parsing through this and, and bringing us just a challenging book Uh, a bracing conversation, a necessary conversation, and uh, for putting neurotheology into into our language stream now so we can start thinking about, all right, my brain has something to do with this. I thought it did. Now I know. So where do we go from here? I, I so appreciate you doing that and for taking the time to talk today. 
Yes, thank you very much also, Casey, for putting me on the train to Chicago and all those other places you go. I appreciate being part of your community. Uh, you're welcome. Okay, go ahead, take a deep breath. That was a lot to take in. Even as I was recording this interview, I thought to myself, oh, we are currently drinking from the fire hose. But I hope this was a challenging conversation for you. And I hope that coming out of it, you'll ask yourself some, some key critical questions. One of the biggest ones is this, what are your attachments? What are the things that we are most connected to? And how, do they, how are they transforming us? How are they changing us? How are they making us, drawing us closer to the people we believe God created us to be? Or if you're not a person of faith, how are your attachments shaping your life? And maybe there's an experiment to be made with the teachings of Jesus where you can, you can try them, experiment with them, and see if, they, see if they work. Do an empirical experiment and take a month and just obey the teachings of Jesus and see how your brain and how your relationships might change. Dr. Jim Wilder is a neurotheologian who has trained leaders and counselors for nearly 30 years on five continents. He's the founder of something called Life Model Works. He's an expert on the intersection of theology and brain science. He's the author of the book that we've been talking about, Renovated, God, Dallas Willard, and the Church That Transforms. And he is also the co-author of a book called Rare Leadership and a book called Living from the Heart That Jesus Gave You. If you want to know more about Dr. Wilder, you can find information in the show notes. If you are listening on iTunes, thank you for listening. If you are listening on Spotify or streaming via my website, thank you. If, if you have subscribed or not, doesn't matter, would you rate and review this podcast either on iTunes or Spotify? It just helps me to know who's listening and, and what you're listening for and what it is that you need. Uh, also, if you get a chance and you believe this podcast would be helpful for someone, go ahead and share it with them through whatever means that you can. So my friends, may we think in this time of very strange, strange happenings, may we think about our brains, may we think about our thinking, may we think about what it is that we're attached to, and may we pursue a life that is transformed and renovated from the inside out, starting with our brains and going all the way through the rest of us. Until next time. Be well, live wisely, peace friends.